Paul says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Did you get all that? Paul, he has a way with words. I'm going to try to hone in and focus on just a few of them today. So today, just to give you a brief outline of the sermon, we're going to talk about the right law, we're going to talk about sin, and we're going to talk about death. So grab your seats. This could be a bumpy ride. I promise you there will be some gospel. But Paul really pulls no punches here. The right law. In 1776, to draft the Declaration of Independence, the Second Continental Congress appointed a committee of five consisting of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. The declaration was actually written between June 11th and June 28th in 1976. 1976? 1776. It's pretty fresh. (laughs) On this day, July 2nd, 1776, Congress voted for independence. And then the Constitution, or the Declaration of Independence, was then published July 4th. And now we live in a land where laws, they change. Depending on which political party is in control, we either approve of these law changes when they happen, or we greatly disprove of them. And so it should come as no surprise, in a land that changes laws, It should be no surprise that some people would find God's unchanging law to be the aberration and therefore inappropriate or out of date. So some church denominations have begun to reset their standard based on social issues, based on shifting cultural standards. 
And Paul says the law has a limit. It's only valid until death occurs. He says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from that law of marriage. And we still have those words in our right of of marriage till death parts us. Death, it releases us from the law. The contract is declared null and void. Paul says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Obey the law. You can be righteous and made right with God. Only we know that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. We can obey. We can't obey. And if we think we can, that's called self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is the opposite of righteous. We're really as far from righteous as you can get that you are actually at war with God. And that's a battle that, that none of us could get even hope to win. And so the result, hearing this right law, is one of these. You can either just give up and give in to sin, or you can try hard and fail and lose hope, or you can try hard and think you're doing great and have a false sense of hope, or you can try hard, fail, and fall on your knees in repentance and seek God's mercy and grace. Receive his forgiveness and renewal. Receive his strength to do better. Sin. Maybe we get numb to the idea that we are poor, miserable sinners. Maybe you approach that time in confession and worship where you just, kinda, you just speak it because you, you know what words are supposed to come out of your mouth next, but you don't really take time to ponder what that really means inside. But the very first time that somebody hears a word like cancer, it goes straight to the heart and soul of somebody. It should be the same as the law reveals our sin. It should cut you to the heart. And it reminds me of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And so this is after after the resurrection, right? And, and Peter is speaking to this huge crowd of people that's gathered from all over in Jerusalem. And he says, he starts off with a, with a, with a hammer. He's like, you, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. And that just stung to the heart of people. And they cried out, what must, what must we do? Paul says, for sin... Seizing an opportunity, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. See, the enemy tempts us to sin and violate God's laws, and he does this in so many different ways. He tempts us to believe that what we're doing really isn't that bad. Or tempts us to believe that it's, it's not hurting anybody. People won't even know. Or he tempts us to believe that we actually deserve to enjoy life. That God has restricted us and limited our happiness by these laws that we really deserve to be happy. He tempts us in pride to believe that our sin isn't as bad as somebody else's. He tempts us to focus on our own sin, excuse me, to focus on 
other people's sin so we don't have to take time to look at our own. He tempts us to believe that some sins are worse than others. He tempts us to believe that we certainly deserve God's grace, but not those people. He tempts us to believe that some of God's laws are outdated, socially irrelevant, or even offensive and bigoted. And he uses this phrase that sin seizes this opportunity. In addiction recovery, people learn that addiction is cunning, baffling, and powerful. A friend of mine added the word patient. Satan likes to bide his time for the exact moment when we are weak, whenever we're hungry or angry or tired or lonely or stressed. He strikes then, seizing the opportunity. And to make matters worse with this whole sin situation is it's not just about the things that we do and don't do. Right? Jesus shared in the Sermon on the Mount that the Ten Commandments are also about a condition in the heart, also about inward motivation. Jesus said, in effect, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you this, anybody who is bitter or hates his neighbor is guilty of breaking this same commandment. See, when you read the Ten Commandments as they're written out in Exodus, Theoretically, you could maybe go through and justify, oh, haven't done that one, haven't done that one, haven't done that one. I did this one. I honored my mom and and dad. I didn't do these other things. And in fact, when we have confirmation, I love to to talk to our our middle schoolers and, and I make them this wager that I bet them that every single one of them has violated every single commandment. And if I'm wrong, I'll buy you a hamburger And if you're wrong, you buy me a hamburger. And instantly, like, hands go up, like, I can't commit adultery, Pastor Ty, because I'm not married. Like, okay. And then we start to have the discussion of, well, even if you don't actually act out in any of these commands, the human heart is so incredibly broken. And it's filled with things like lust and envy and greed and hatred and fear. When you have those feelings, you're just as guilty as breaking and doing what God said not to or not doing what God said to do. So I've yet to purchase a hamburger for a student. I've not collected on them because that would have been like hundreds of hamburgers. (laughs) Which sounds pretty good right now. I'm starving. So in other words, you can interpret the law superficially, seeing it only as behavioral rules that are not that hard to keep. But in fact, you can only do that through the first several commandments. And when you get to the coveting commandments, that's when you realize that it has nothing to do necessarily with what you physically do or don't do, but it's a condition of the heart. You see, to covet something is to not be content with what God has given you. To covet, something, to covet something means that you have this idolatrous passion for, desire for, more than what God has given you. Whether that be more money or more influence or more fill in the blank. <clears throat> and you long for that more than you long for God. 
So even if you could keep all of the other commandments externally, Jesus taught that we all continue to sin in our minds and in our hearts. And the wages of sin, we know, is death. And we know that we desperately need transformed lives of freedom from this sin. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. You see, the enemy, the enemy just doesn't sit back and say, okay, Jesus, you win, you can have them all. He doesn't ever relinquish like that. Now, Jesus had to demand our freedom. Jesus stood up on the cross and demanded that our sins be paid in full on him instead of us. Jesus demanded our freedom. Patrick Henry in March 1775, famous speech in which he said, give me liberty or give me death. He had it close. Paul teaches us that Jesus would say something like, I will give you liberty at the cost of my death. See, Jesus knew that the only pathway to freedom was his death for us. In John 15, the gospel writer writes, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul says, likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, the law reveals that we are bound and married to sin. And that commitment that bondage lasts until death. But by our baptisms, we are connected to the death of Christ. And we're released from that binding relationship with sin. And now we're free to be bound to Christ who raised from the dead. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that when we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We are once held bondage into sin, but our baptisms have set us free. Christ died in our place, nullifying sin's marriage with us. We had dinner at a friend's house the other day, and while we were there, the dog just threw up. Right on, right, right there's like, Hardwood, tile, carpet, right? On the carpet. They have two dogs. Then the next dog just goes up to it and just starts, you know, eating the vomit. It's pretty scriptural. Like a dog returns to his vomit, so we do with our sin. But fortunately, because of Christ, because we have been set free from our sin... Sin's fruit of death no longer is our fate. But when we do sin, we have this growing repulsion inside of us that hates what we've done. And it drives us to our knees in repentance, seeking God's forgiveness and renewal and strength. The right law. Paul says in our text today that the law is holy. The commandment 
is holy and righteous and good. Holy. Holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. The law's purpose is to reveal our sin and lead us to repentance. It is righteous. It is absolutely righteous. By the grace of God, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He takes a look at our faith that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. He sees that faith and he considers it. He counts it. He credits it to us as the righteousness of Christ. See, the law now is no longer an impossible task for us to accomplish, but it's a prescription for how we are to live, how we are to love one another, how we are to love God, how we are to experience the best life possible this side of heaven. And it is good. Every time I hear the word good in Scripture, I go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Where God, after he's created everything in six days, he takes a step back and he observes it all. He takes it all in. Only God could do that. He takes everything that he's just done and he takes it in. And with a smile on his face, he says, this is exactly the way I pictured it in my mind. It is good. It is exactly how I intended You see, there is nothing wrong with the law of God. There is no law that is out of date. There is no law that is in need of correction or adaptation. And fortunately, there is no part of God's law that Jesus hasn't already fulfilled in our place. You see, now that we live after the resurrection with this promise of Jesus fulfilled that he will come to save and redeem us, And as we long for and look forward to the promise that he will return to take us to be where he is, we still need the law in our life. It's not just that we can live with the gospel all the time. We need both intention with each other. We we need to know how to show our love to God, to show our love to one another. And we need the law to point out where we go wrong, where we make mistakes, so that we can be repulsed by what we've done wrong and hit our knees in repentance. And while God's law is unchanging and highly offensive to today's culture, it still needs to be taught clearly. We need to hear it. We need to know it. We need to measure ourselves by it, and we need continual repentance and renewal. We need a, a map to show us our journey of loving God and one another. And we need to share this with our world, with our community, with our neighborhood. We need to show love while we do so to those still living in darkness. We can speak the truth in love and we can love a person without agreeing with them, without approving of them. See, without approving of or agreeing with, we can still accept them where they are in that moment. Again, hear me clearly. I am not saying we approve of and condone, but we accept where they are because that's exactly what Jesus does with us. While we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. And so we are to take this law, this good, this perfect, this righteous, this holy law, into the darkness of this world. The right law. Jesus fulfilled it all. Sin, Jesus paid for in full on the cross. Death has been swallowed up by our Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, so much of the time we focus on the richness of the gospel that refreshes us, that renews us. But God, we don't hunger for that or desire for that without your good, righteous, and holy will, law. God, we pray that you would reveal to us more and more that that we would hear your law and see our mistakes and fall to you in repentance. God, thank you for the gift of the cross for Christ who forgives, who renews, and brings us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.